Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Conversations with Omi Naido, the show where we connect the experts directly to you. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Rob van Gassel, who is a medical doctor and clinical researcher at Maastricht University in Netherlands. He works in the Department of Intensive Care Medicine and Surgery and is also part of NUTRIM, which stands for the School of Nutrition and Translational Research in Metabolism. He recently published an amazing paper titled The Metabolic Aspects of Muscle Wasting During Critical Illness. This was published in Current Opinion and in this episode we really drill down into muscle wasting in critical illness, understanding the pathophysiology and what can we as nutritional professionals do to improve this problem in the ICU. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe and a special thanks goes out to Nutrisha for supporting this episode. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so welcome to Dr. Van Fassel. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, something that really caught my eye and your name uh, really came up quite strongly is the area of critical illness and muscle mass and muscle preservation. Could I ask what sparked your interest in this research area? Yes, of course. Um, so I remember actually quite vividly. So I'm an MD and I work uh, um, um, currently as a surgical resident, but I remember when I started my internships, I did an internship in the ICU for the first time. And I was really struck by, um, by muscle loss that, that was happening in these patients. And I think in critical illness, it's one of the yeah, few, if not only disease states where you can see muscle wasting actually happening eh, over the days as patients are uh, admitted. And uh, when you speak to patients, uh, especially in the Netherlands, there are, there are some of these follow-up outpatient clinics where you see patients back after two months, three months or, or longer. And then when you see what the impact is of the muscle they lost during ICU and how that still impacts their day-to-day -day living, yeah, I, I really got interested in, so what's causing this problem and, and what are the uh, drivers of muscle loss and what are the potential avenues for uh, intervention? So that, that's really from a clinical point of view uh, my, that sparked my interest into this uh, subject. Okay, so I really did enjoy your, your paper in the current opinion of clinical nutrition and metabolism. And I think you know, it's, it's important to you, you make a very valid, valid uh, point that, you know, muscle mass is something that us dietitians always have on our sort of radar of something to preserve and to increase, but it's not always on the entire team's agenda. If I could just start off by asking you, what are the drivers for muscle loss in critical illness? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good and also, I think, a very complicated uh, question. If, if you break it down completely to the basics then, uh, and you look at muscle loss of muscle mass, it's in essence an excess of protein breakdown in relation to protein synthesis. And so the muscle is, of course, a buildup of, of skeletal muscle protein and also in health uh, uh, in us, the, the muscle is in a continuous state of turnover. So at a, there's continuously muscle protein being synthesized and muscle protein being broken down. And there are a lot of stimuli during the day that drive muscle protein anabolism, like eating, like moving. And there are 
drivers that that sort of uh, drive muscle protein breakdown, so fasting or, or or immobilization. But normally, what you see in health is that this this process is very tightly regulated. So the net balance between synthesis and breakdown uh, is the same, which means that while there is a turnover, there's not the muscle mass is maintained. And what you see in the ICU is that this balance is completely disrupted. And you see a sharp increase in muscle protein breakdown and a decrease or a muscle protein synthesis that is unable to, to keep up with that breakdown. And so you go from a net maintenance state or a state of turnover to a net loss of muscle broke, uh, skeletal muscle protein, which drives the muscle loss. So in essence, it's basically more muscle protein breakdown than there is synthesis, but there are of course a lot of metabolic drivers that sort of drive this disbalance in the ICU. So it has to do of course with immobilization. It has to do with inflammation, which are potent drivers of the, the increased protein breakdown. Um, also has to do perhaps with malnutrition or malabsorption of nutrients that we provide, which inhibits uh, muscle protein synthesis. So um, yeah, there's a lot of factors that contribute to, uh, to muscle loss. Okay, so I've had my, my list of questions that I would, uh, would go through with you. And it seems in the first question, you, you've nicely summarized everything. Shall we call it a day? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'm just nice, to, nice to speak to you. <laughs> just teasing, just teasing. Yeah. So if I could ask you, you know, something that was quite, uh, that stood out for me from your paper was the fact that increased muscle mass doesn't always translate to better muscle functionality. Could you comment on this? What are the drivers or what causes this? Yeah, so that, that's a very good question. And what we also describe in our paper is sort of the sequential hits of, of uh, how muscle is lost. So you have basically this disturbed metabolism, which we talked about. So more uh, protein breakdown than there is synthesis, which leads to loss of muscle mass which then leads to mass of muscle function. And what you see is perhaps at the end of ICU stay or at the end of hospital stay, the metabolism appears to be restored, but it takes of course much longer before uh, your muscle mass and indeed your muscle function is uh, restored. And I think any, anyone who's ever had a leg or a hand in, in a cast knows that you lose muscle very quickly, uh, but getting muscle back takes much longer. And now the interesting thing that you see in, in some of these studies is that even though patients regain some or uh, very rarely even all of their muscle mass, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they also regain muscle function, as you say. And I think we, we are very focused on muscle mass. I do think it's a very important factor in, in, in ICU acquired weakness, but it's not just that muscle uh, tissue that there's less muscle tissue, but the muscle tissue that's left over is also damaged. And we know from um, some papers, uh, the, uh, the paper of Zudin Pothicherry and Yama about acute skeletal muscle wasting. We also took muscle biopsies and actually showed there's, a, there's also muscle necrosis. There's also uh, dying of the muscle. We know that there's also neurological uh, deficits that can occur during critical illness. So um, although we're focused on muscle mass, and that is an important component, um, we shouldn't forget that there are also other factors that contribute, that translate muscle mass into muscle function, which are also affected in the ICU. Yeah, I think you, you make a very, very valid point there. And, you know, a lot of the time, us dietitians are very much focused on mass, you know, just to increase size. But 
you know, the functionality is where the, the quality of life is either going to be improved or whether it's reduced. So you make a very, you know, key finding there. They're actually maybe just yes. just a short addition. There are actually slowly more and more studies coming out, uh, which link, for instance, you can measure muscle mass with an ultrasound that actually show that not necessarily the uh, muscle mass loss predicts um, uh, function, the muscle function after ICU, but more the changes in muscle quality. So changes in echogeneity of the muscle. So I think we're also gonna see much more studies that look into not just muscle mass, but also muscle quality and how it affects outcomes. Okay. You know, in your paper, you, you speak about the effect of muscle wasting on whether it's short or long-term outcomes. In your opinion, how significant is this? You know, often you get doctors who work even in the ICUs that uh, may tell a dietitian, my role is to make the patient survive this ICU stay. And, you know, muscle wasting in our terms, not necessarily on their radar, of course. Yeah, I think, you know, understandably, of course, ICU physicians are very much focused on, on uh, mortality and saving a patient's life. And, and let's be real, that is why the patient is in the ICU. So naturally, I, of course, understand why, why there's, of course, a lot of focus on, okay, we just need to make sure that the patient survives. But I think we also should look at the follow-up period and see what, so once the patient survives, what, what are the impacts of, of uh, your treatment uh, and, and how is the quality of life for patients after ICU? And then you see that uh, especially loss of muscle mass, muscle wasting, uh, muscle uh, ICU acquired weakness plays a tremendous role in sort of the, the quality of life of patients after ICU. If you're too weak, we see that return to work is actually impaired in patients. Uh, there are of course these very strong follow-up study cohorts by Margaret Herridge, which show that, you know, in the after, after a year after you've survived the ICU admission, half of the patients are still unable to return to work. So this can really, of course, have a major disruption on, on your daily functioning. And actually we see that now also with the, the, the COVID pandemic, we, we've, published some of the, uh, we've published some work on sort of functional outcomes of, of these patients, which are of course, relatively long in the ICU on ventilator stay. And there you see that muscle uh, loss of muscle function is actually quite large and really impacts uh, yeah, the day-to-day -day functioning of, uh, of patients. So definitely we should focus more on, uh, on these outcomes because the patient is only shortly in ICU and hopefully he survives, but uh, the, the, the outcomes of the ICU is something that the patients uh, can struggle with for years even. So definitely should have uh, our focus. Okay, so Dr. Van Kassel, can you just elaborate for me uh, in terms of drugs, you know, what ICU drugs do increase the catabolism of proteins? Um, well, that, that, that's a good question. So we know that, um, of course, corticosteroids are something that can, can uh, are known in, uh, to uh, increase muscle uh, protein catabolism. We know that mostly from sort of long patients who are on long-term corticosteroid use, but we suspect that also um, using them in the ICU has some effect, uh, but those effects are sometimes difficult to, to, to really filter out. I think the, the, the 
the strongest drug or the strongest catabolic driver in the ICU is actually immobilization and everything that we provide the patient that that um, um, that sort of exacerbates this immobilization. So sedation, definitely muscle relaxants. Patients who are immobile lose muscle really fast. We know also from other research, if you and I as healthy persons, we keep eating, but we spend one week in bed, we will still lose uh, approximately 1.4 kilograms of muscle. So imagine what, uh, what uh, goes on in the ICU patient. So immobilization is probably the strongest catabolic driver um, and, and sedation and muscle relaxants and everything that exacerbates that is probably the, the biggest thing that we should uh, focus on. Okay, and in your paper, you discuss, you know, the first 10 days or some research that's out there showing, you know, the first 10 days is this critical phase of where you get that hit of where the muscle mass is really lost and, you know, trying to catch up to that. I'm going to ask you just two things based on that. Could you maybe hit on that concept? And then how does this concept then relate to, if I think of the ICU I work in, our patients often get multiple hits you know they, they go through that various you know you think they're doing well they're extubated and you know they crash they're intubated again inflammatory markers are high they pick up another infection and you know it's a seesaw kind of effect through the icu journey is that kind of something that's pretty static it's still the first 10 days or is that something that's fluid and moves according to the sort of inflammatory state of the body yeah, well, I think I think that's an excellent question, and and um, you you make a very good point. The honest answer is we don't know, and we say the first ten days because that's where most of the studies have been in. We we uh, mostly investigate patients in the acute phase. Um, there are several techniques that you can use to visualize muscle protein synthesis and breakdown, like using uh, stable isotope tracers, and these are often studies that are mostly performed in sort of the early phase of ICU patients. So I think especially when patients get multiple hits, they are immobilized for longer, they get a reinfection or a ventilator associated pneumonia and they deteriorate again. Those are definitely probably factors that, that contribute to, to muscle wasting. And if you look in, in sort of large database, sort of the clinical characteristics that are the strongest predictors of um, ICU acquired weakness and, and post-ICU functionality, then it's of course age, um, uh, age and gender. But the, uh, the third one is the length of stay. So the longer your patient is in the ICU, the more muscle he will lose and the more at risk they will be uh, to develop these uh, persistent uh, muscle uh, disability after ICU discharge. Dr. Van Gassel, from you know, everything you, you say and whatever I've read in your paper, it seems that COVID is this sort of orchestra of muscle wasting. You've got everything that's saying lose a lot of muscle to the body. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and that's also what we thought when uh, COVID patients started hitting our center. So we very, very early on thought about we should follow these patients up and see how they develop because these are patients that spent on average uh, especially during our initial wave, three, three weeks on ventilator. They often require long periods of sedation, often uh, require um, lots of muscle relaxants if they uh, are have severe ARDS uh, symptoms. Um, and actually, when you look at some of the literature that's already out there, and we've published uh, something on this, uh, um, then 
actually the damage that is uh, the, the the amount of muscle wasting isn't that as severe as I would have thought. So definitely there is muscle persistent muscle weakness, but it's quite on par with what you see in other disease states. So based on what we see now, it doesn't appear that patients with COVID are more susceptible to muscle weakness than for instance, patients with other causes of ARDS or causes for prolonged ICU uh, admission. Um, what you do see, and we've published recently a research letter in the Blue Journal about this, is that you do see that also the pulmonary um, sequelae that persist. So uh, we see after three months that the majority of patients still have um, uh, reduced pulmonary function on their uh, on a pulmonary function test, especially the fusion capacity. And this is very strongly associated with sort of the physical performance of these patients. So what you see is that, yes, it's muscle loss that's important uh, for the condition of patients, but in the, these patients in particular, it's also the pulmonary damage that has been done and that we uh, are unsure yet as how uh, to what extent that will fully recover uh, over longer periods. Uh. Okay, so th that's actually quite a good finding that it wasn't, you know, that bad compared to the other areas of critical illness. But, you know, as you say, there's so much more that we're still uh, going to be learning and researching on these patients. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so with the EPANIC trial, they, they did that follow-up follow -up cohort and, you know, they're even finding five years later, the, the muscle weakness is still persistent. Is, is that something that you could, is there something you could tell dietitians out there that they could do differently to help to sort of reduce this effect? Well, th that's a, also a very good question. And I think, unfortunately, the honest and, and also a bit uh, sad answer is um, we don't really know. We don't really have effective strategies um, that have proven to be effective in prospective trials in preventing this muscle loss. Um, we know very well what causes muscle loss. We, uh, the, all the factors that we've discussed and immobilization. But when you see, for instance, uh, randomized trials of mobilization therapy, aggressive early mobilization versus not, not really, there's not really a pronounced effect on, on muscle mass and function. So unfortunately, although we know partly what's causing the problem, one of the challenges that we have is finding solutions for that problem. Um, of course, there's also a lot of focus on nutritional interventions. We know that especially the provision of dietary protein is really important for muscle maintenance, is a really strong anabolic uh, stimulus that we um, should maybe um, provide also our patients with higher protein doses, but we're struggling in large trials to demonstrate this effect. This is, I think, also partly to do with the endpoints that we choose in, this in these trials. We often choose mortality as an endpoint. And I think what we will look towards in the future is move more towards functional endpoints and look at interventions in the ICU that help enhance the recovery of patients after the ICU. So if you provide, for instance, more dietary protein in the ICU, preventing muscle wasting or muscle loss, will that be able to enhance the recovery of patients after the ICU? Um, those are things we are currently doing a large randomized controlled trial on this subject. Um, in both the Netherlands and, uh, and Belgium, the PRECISE trial, which is actually the first protein trial that looks at functional endpoints. The question is, will we see an effect? And that's something that we uh, hopefully can report on in, the, in, a, in about a year or two. 
Um, but other than that, optimizing nutrition and mobilization, we're not really sure if that is effective or whether there are other opportunities to improve muscle, uh, uh, prevent muscle wasting. Okay, and could you maybe just touch on the three phases of, of muscle mass in, in critical care? Yeah, so, so what, what we've described as muscle loss begins with, uh, the, uh, with a metabolic problem, uh, meaning muscle catabolism. So what we've discussed, you have more protein breakdown than you have synthesis, but this catabolic state is sort of amended, but as uh, at the end of ICU stay, but during this catabolic process, you of course lose muscle mass. And that's basically the second phase. For, for you to regain muscle mass, you need to become uh, highly anabolic. So you need to have way more protein synthesis than to have protein breakdown. And this is quite difficult to achieve um, even in uh, healthy uh, people. And so what you see is that there's a initial metabolic hit in the ICU. And then there's some form of muscle mass recovery in a period of of about a year, but then you see sort of patients flatline and don't really regain much more muscle mass after that. And then of course there's muscle weakness, which follows loss of muscle mass. Um, and there you see that it sort of follows a delayed pattern where there's some uh, re, uh, regaining of uh, muscle function, but it appears to be like we've discussed previously, much less, uh, less recovered than muscle mass. Um, and so you have this short metabolic hit in the ICU, a small period of recovery in sort of the first year after the ICU where you regain some muscle mass and function. And then after that, there appears to be a state of sort of persistent disability that can last uh, perhaps uh, five years is the longest we've looked, but maybe even longer where patients experience persistent uh, disability. Okay, so, you know, the, the simplistic way as, as a dietitian, you know, looking at, at what we do, one would always think, you know, additional protein, increased muscle mass. So it was quite enlightening just to, to nicely get a summary that there's so many other factors at play that we need to be looking at so many more things. Yeah. Yeah. And for something as simple as provision of dietary protein, which is something we do, of course, for all our patients via tube feeding, we provide patients with protein, but how is the protein getting absorbed? We know from studies that there's actually quite a lot of malabsorption in, by the intestines. So not everything that we provide to our patients actually reaches the patients. You need protein broken down into amino acids um, and then absorbed by the gut. There appears to, this appears to be compromised in these patients. And then those amino acids need to go through the bloodstream into your muscle. And that's also a process that requires uh, good anabolic signaling and, and all these factors that all appear to be um, compromised in the ICU. So we're still needing, we still need to solve some of, I think, these types of physiological questions of how can we optimize our nutrition support in a way that it best supports the muscle of these patients. Okay, it was interesting to, to read that 11% uh, of the diet-derived proteins in healthy subjects is only incorporated into the muscle. And, you know, yeah. one would think, you know, increase your, your protein intake, boom, muscle mass is going to increase. Yeah. So this is really nice. I feel very privileged to work in Maastricht, where we have a, a, a large group that works with stable isotope tracers, uh, the group by uh, Luc van Loon, who is a professor in sort of uh, dietary protein and health. And they have, uh, when you use type stable isotope tracers, these are basically labeled proteins. 
So what you do is you label a protein, you give it to a subject, a healthy volunteer, and then you can measure where, how much of the protein is absorbed and where it's going to. And what those studies show is that when you eat protein, about uh, it's, uh, it is digested into amino acids. And actually half of the amino, only half of the amino acids actually reach your systemic circulation. The other half is already metabolized by your gut and your liver. So there's a high, so this is already in health uh, the case. And then, um, but actually 11% of the protein that you eat ends up as muscle protein within six hours of you ingesting that meal. So just think about how important dietary protein is, is that if we eat a hamburger right now, within six hours, 11% of that hamburger is incorporated into, uh, into our muscle. And we don't know how, whether ICU patients have the same um, anabolic response. What we do know is that the amount of amino acids that reach the circulation is not just over half, but based on studies, much lower. And so it's um, logical to assume that probably also the amount of dietary protein that contributes to the muscle is also much lower. And these are questions that we really need to address um, in order to really know whether increasing dietary protein provision could be helpful for our patients. Okay, so Dr. Van Kassel, can you just explain to our listeners as well, what is the term bioenergetic failure of the muscle? I read it in the paper, and it, it, it's quite something that's very metabolically related. Yeah, so um, we talk about uh, skeletal muscle protein synthesis. Uh, so this means amino acids being incorporated and turned into skeletal muscle protein. But this is, of course, not a passive process. It's a process that requires energy and it requires uh, ATP consumption by your cells um, in order to synthesize, actively synthesize um, skeletal muscle protein. And um, there is uh, some evidence currently in literature emerging that this sort of um, energetic machinery of the cell is also compromised in the ICU patient. So that would mean that even though amino acids, for instance, from your diet reach the muscle, the muscle doesn't have the energetic capacity or the energetic uh, metabolism to be able to synthesize uh, skeletal muscle protein uh, from it. And so this process is called bioenergetic failure. There are some studies that suggest that this could also play a, a crucial role in what we call the anabolic resistance in patients. So the fact that these ICU patients don't react normally to an anabolic stimulus like dietary protein as we would expect in health. Okay, thank you for that explanation. And then two pathways that uh, I found from your paper quite interesting was the mTOR and the UPS and autophagy. If you were to explain it in a nutshell, uh, how would you do that? Well, if you um, do it very basically, then all cells, not just muscle, but all cells have uh, signaling properties that either uh, stimulate the cell to synthesize protein or to break down its protein. And the mTOR pathway is sort of the main uh, signaling pathway of uh, driving protein synthesis. And the UPS or the ubiquitin proteasome system is the main pathway for cell protein breakdown. And um, basically these are sensors in the cell that detect um, whether the cell is ready to synthesize protein. So for instance, when the amount of nutrients like amino acids increase in the cellular environment, 
that signals the mTOR pathway are actually some amino acids that specifically like leucine, which is uh, often uh, used as uh, has direct sig uh, anabolic signaling properties through that mTOR pathway. And the same uh, is true for the, uh, the UPS, so the ubiquitin proteasome pathway, which, is the which senses for signals that uh, the cell should break down protein. And this is, for instance, in the ICU, uh, inflammation is a very important uh, um, stimulus, stimulant of the UPS pathways, several cytokines that can uh, stimulate this pathway and therefore induce muscle, uh, muscle and general protein breakdown. Okay, and then where does autophagy fit into this? So um, uh, autophagy is basically the the, the 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 cell's mechanism to clean up uh, clean up its protein, and it's require it's it's a, a mechanism to to clean up the the um, um, the, the defunct uh, proteins. Um, but it's also required uh, uh, an effective autophagy is also required for yeah, keeping your muscle healthy and keeping the protein, muscle protein uh, healthy. Um, I'm not a complete autophagy expert, so I cannot um, uh, share with you the, the details. There are, of course, quite some suggestions in literature that, that uh, point towards autophagy as uh, and, and, and uh, uh, this regulation in autophagy is one of the main drivers of muscle um, wasting in the ICU. Um, but there's some co controversy around this topic, uh, around this topic, how strong the evidence actually is. There's recently some uh, new evidence that actually suggests that it's not at all compromised. So yeah, the word is not out, uh, out there yet on how important uh, this process is in, uh, in the ICU patient. Dr. Van Kassel, you know, that's something I, I really enjoy about uh, clinical nutrition is that you know, there's so much that we don't know and there's so much that's new evidence that's always being presented and you know, it keeps you stimulated in the field completely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much still that we don't know. There's so much still to discover uh, that could help improve uh, our patient's outcomes. So uh, luckily I still have many years uh, to go uh, to uh, get uh, invested in this uh, topic. Okay, so now let's move on to the endocrine hormones and what are the effects on your, your muscle wasting? If you could just give us a, a nutshell. And if I could ask you to please pick on the, the newer molecule, what is it, FGF19 and 21? Yeah, so basically, um, normally, uh, we've already talked about your muscle being in a constant turnover. So muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein breakdown. And this process is, is of course tightly regulated. And one of the players that regulate this process are these endocrine hormones. And what you see is that many of those hormones that regulate the, the muscle uh, homeostasis are centered around nutrition and uh, uh, consumption of a meal. So a very well-known anabolic hormone uh, is insulin. Um, and what happens, is when you eat a meal, uh, you get slowly, you get a release of these uh, of glucose and, and amino acids into the circulation. And your body has to sort of set up this signaling apparatus that signals the body to send those nutrients towards the tissues that need it. So for instance, to the muscle. And insulin is of course well known to, to um, so you have first of your glucose peak, you have insulin that, that regulates this. 
um, anabolic uh, response. And then if once you're fasted and you're fasted long enough, you get the counterpart of insulin, which is glucagon, uh, glucagon, which uh, of course does the reverse. Now, these neurometabolic hormones, things like FGF19 and FGF21, they appear to be having some of the same mechanisms, but more of a delayed uh, response. So perhaps FGF19 is, is the, the most well-studied. FGF19 is a hormone that's released by your intestine, and it's released once bowel acids are absorbed by your intestine. So what happens is you eat a meal, your gallbladder contracts, bowel acids enter the intestine, and most of your bowel acids are absorbed by the ileum, the final part of your uh, intestine. And as they travel through the ileum, they signal the ileum to produce this FGF19. And what has become clear uh, over the past decade since, since this mechanism of action is, is, uh, was uh, demonstrated is that this FGF19 is a really important regulator in all of these anabolic processes that signal um, basically the body to use the nutrients that are becoming available from uh, your meal. And what we see in the ICU and what we've measured is that you would normally expect a meal and then an FGF19 response, but this response is completely absent in the ICU patients. And what we, one of the hypotheses that we have is that perhaps um, the anabolic resistance that we see in patients, so patients not responding normally to dietary protein as you would expect, is perhaps in part also due because this complete endo, enteroendocrine system is disrupted and the body isn't getting the appropriate signals um, that it needs to signal uh, that nutrients should become available uh, or derived towards tissues. Okay, so a lot of what you explaining, uh, you know, all that comes to mind for me is the incretin hormones and with diabetes care where the GLP-1 is now an injectable form and to sort of, you know, modulate that pathway. Do you ever think we'd get to a point where this, this hormone is, is injected to our patients as a means to preserve muscle mass or increase muscle mass? Yeah, so we're far away from using FGF19, I think, as a, as a potential intervention to preserve muscle mass. Um, however, FGF19 is increasingly being investigated and used uh, in, in other metabolic diseases, uh, non-alcohol, uh, things like NASH, uh, so non-alcohol steatohepatitis, um, which uh, um, appears to be related to also to a decrease in FGF19. So there's definitely therapeutic potential for it um, in the ICU. We're perhaps uh, a long way from it uh, at this point. Okay. And if I could, you know, we, we, we're getting close to the end now. And if I could ask your thoughts, you mentioned leucine. And if I could just mention three things, leucine, HMB, and 3-hydroxybutyrate. You know, how, what's the evidence on, and what's the effect of it? And, you know, do you advocate for these uh, these amino acids? Yeah, so the, the, the idea behind uh, the, the, the leucine and the HMB are, are basically that they, aside from being amino acids, being building blocks of the muscle, they are also important signaling molecules. And we know from leucine and it's metabolized like HMB that it can directly uh, signal uh, the muscle uh, protein the synthetic uh, response. And uh, leucine supplementation is sometimes, sometimes used in athletes to sort of enhance the anabolic uh, potential of, of protein intake. 
Um, there are some ideas about its use uh, in the ICU. I think there's also a study currently being conducted on, on the use of HMB. Um, and, uh, but currently we don't really have convincing evidence that, that it is really effective. And I think, um, I think one of my main points would be, I think there are a lot of opportunities um, to improve metabolic care for the muscle. Uh, uh, I think there are a lot of ideas about combining nutritional and, and um, uh, perhaps even medical and uh, mobilization interventions to uh, in, in, uh, attenuate muscle wasting. But I think as a scientific community also, we first have to find ways to assess, effectively assess their impact uh, as well. And uh, so far we've struggled to um, validate these um, supplementations like leucine, which have a, a really good rationale for their use, um, but we struggle to prove their effectiveness in, in cl clinical practice. And I think that's really a challenge for uh, the scientific community to work on uh, and to validate these, um, uh, these potential interventions uh, for use in clinical practice before we would really recommend its uh, routine use. Okay, I think you make a good point where you say, you know, it, it's basically multifactorial, this muscle loss, and looking to treat it with just one avenue or one mechanism is kind of unrealistic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and we will likely need to find a combination of interventions that together are more effective than the sum of its uh, parts. Okay, and just in closing, you know, the listenership includes, you know, various people that have an interest in clinical nutrition but the bulk of it are, are registered dietitians. Is there any advice that you could give them? Uh, the benefits of, that you may have in a research setting is you know, the lovely equipment to do the ultrasound and measure muscle mass and those sort of things. But for the day-to-day -day dietitian that's in their units, you know, not very often you have this technology. Is there any sort of parting advice you could give them just knowing that you know, muscle mass is now after this podcast, a lot more on, on their sphere of thought, but more muscle functionality is, is something that we should look at. Yeah, I, I think uh, you make a very good question, uh, good point. And it's very nice to have all these advanced uh, metabolic uh, measurements that we can use to quantify muscle mass and quality. But I think in daily practice in the ICU, um, I'd say the basics are really important. And um, I think every ICU should have good dietitians that are actively involved in day-to-day -day care of patients. We should really just focus on getting the basics right because we often pre prescribe nutrition, but we fail to reach our targets or um, um, nutrition is, as you say, not always uh, on the front of mind of every intensivist. And so I think it's really good to have dietitians that put this issue forward and, and, and are visible in day-to-day -day care. And um, yeah, I think especially also collaboration with the physiotherapist, um, really making the team effort to um, yeah to best to the best of our current knowledge treat these patients with good nutrition, good mobilization, and then hopefully um, prevent as much as the muscle loss as, the, as we can. Okay, thank you for that. And you know, while I have you on this, I always try to make the most of all these interviews. So please excuse me. Uh, just your your thoughts on you know is there any evidence or would you do you know of any evidence that would support you know the cyclic feeding especially with enteral nutrition 
there are some some people that are suggesting that possible time off the feed may help with you know muscle building and the anabolic processes. Uh, your thoughts on that, Dr. Van Hassel? Yeah, so so we provide continuous tube feeding, but that's not, of course, a really physiological measure because we also eat in boluses. And the idea of bolus feeding theoretically is that it sort of increases, you provide more nutrition at one point. So it also has a more stronger activation of all the anabolic and metabolic signalry that we've discussed during this podcast. Um, recently, uh, there was a large trial on this subject published by uh, also the group uh, by Angela McNally and Zudin Pathicherry in CHEST, which basically compared the effect of either a continuous feed or a twice per day or I think four times per day bolus feed in, in the ICU. Um, unfortunately, they did, they did not see a difference uh, on a differing effect on muscle mass. So they measured muscle mass using ultrasound and they did not see a significant difference between those two groups. So I think there's still an interesting idea out there. Perhaps we should also look more on the effects of muscle quality or muscle function after ICU uh, with uh, this uh, intervention. But unfortunately, um, it, uh, it's not, uh, it, it doesn't appear to be beneficial, but for sure it's also not harmful. Uh, so, um, but it's often more, takes more uh, man hours to, to uh, to, of course, employ it in the ICU. Okay, perfect. Dr. Van Kassel, thank you so much for making the time to be on the podcast and for sharing your knowledge, but also thank you for, for doing research in an area that we like to think of very simplistic and unilateral, but something that you, you bring to the fore is that it, it is multifactorial and we need to really just look at every avenue to sort of get to that end point for these patients. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm always happy to uh, discuss a topic that's, uh, I think, near to my heart and I think uh, near to many hearts, uh, many people that uh, work in, uh, in critical care.